This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. We're working our way through Sophocles' greatest hits. Of all the plays he wrote, as we discussed last week, we only have seven, which I guess isn't that surprising since they were written in the 400s BC. But of those, his Oedipus trilogy is by far the most popular, and of those three, Oedipus Rex is the most popular. That's true, and I'm most excited about this popular Antigone play, which is actually the first one he wrote, mostly because it's about a brave woman, which is super surprising. You don't expect to see strong females in a lot of classical literature that was written by men, but especially literature from the ancient world. In fact, off the top of my head, I can't think of another play like this with a a strong female lead, although maybe there is one, I'm not sure. Most of the women in especially Greek stories are self-sacrificing like Hecuba, giving their lives for those they love. That's the model. Uh, But a strong female protagonist like this one is very unusual in a world where women were literally, I mean literally, property. They were viewed legally as such, and they viewed themselves as such, which we're going to see actually play a part in this play. But Antigone, the character, not the play, Antigone, the girl, does not consider herself property. Good for her and good for Sophocles for creating this character. Although I do think most scholars would tell you that Like Oedipus, he didn't really write it. He's just retelling a well-known story. And there are actually a couple of different versions that I've seen kind of floating around. Most of them are more complicated than this one. But all of them involve her hanging herself, just so you know. They all end the same. (laughs) All in the same. (laughs) Well, the, uh, the Oedipus Antigone story, as you know from the last three podcasts, really starts with Oedipus' birth to his parents, Jocasta and Laius. And we probably uh, should have mentioned this, too. Even though the whole I'm married, my mom problem is a real thing, don't let the age gap confuse you. In the ancient world, 
older men often married really young girls, so it was probably true that Laius and Jocasta were farther apart in age than Oedipus and Jocasta. You do have to kind of stop and think about that, huh? But <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it, it's just a little context. Yeah. But age notwithstanding, neither Oedipus nor Jocasta take it well when they realize uh, what he has done in marrying his mother and murdering his father and fulfilling the oracle. Yes, then you'd also go, huh. <laughs> it's always awkward. <laughs> yeah. Jocasta kills herself first because she figures it out first. And when Oedipus Rex figures out what happened and in an outburst of unrestrained rage and grief and agony, and what other array of emotions one would feel upon such a revelation, he gets Jocasta's dress pins and dramatically, passionately pokes out his eyes, leaving literally a bloody mess. At the end of the play, after this revelation, Oedipus makes a deal with Creon, which actually will be the impetus for this play. He's going to promise never to come back to Thebes if Creon will take care of his children. He's not worried about his sons, but he's particularly worried about Ismene and Antigone. Again, they're tainted goods at this point, so he's worried about their future. Creon agrees and is left as regent or surrogate ruler of Thebes until the boys are old enough to rule. I didn't really think about this when we ended our discussion of Sophocles or even, you know, the times that I've read this play. I just assumed, you know, you think Creon's king because who else is going to be king? And that's where we ended. But obviously, it's really not the case. The crown goes to Oedipus's two sons, Polynices and Antiochus, and that's not the same thing as getting the crown. So I guess when he says, take care of my sons, you know, he's leaving him in the regency, but obviously not granting him the kingdom. Well, they were too young to rule at first, but Creon appears brokers this deal that there were two of them and they would take turns a year at a time. One would rule for a year and it would switch out and the other would rule for a year and so forth. And Eteocles would go first. And that just sounds like a disaster. Well, yes, let me interject. Every parent in the room has tried that plan and that deal (laughs) never works. It doesn't even work with toys. I mean, now that we have iPhones, every time my nieces or nephews come over or uh, any of the grandkids, all you have to do is say, okay, we're going to share the cell phone in the car. You're going to take a turn for three minutes. Then you're going to take a turn in three minutes. And inevitably, it disintegrates into the very same thing. Whoever goes first doesn't want to give up the cell phone (laughs) at the end of three minutes. Crying is inevitable. Oh, my gosh. And that's about how it worked out in this case. Uh, The elder brother, Eteocles, refuses to resign the kingship to Polynices at the end of the first year of the royal condominium. A civil war breaks out with Polynices trying to recruit an army from Argos. That actually is a story uh, in a totally different play by Aeschylus, by the way. And it does get us into the second play of the Oedipus series. And this is the one that everyone kind of overlooks. Oedipus at Colonus that Sophocles probably didn't even write. And this is crazy to think about until he was in his late 80s. And some people think maybe even his 90s. So you have these two plays and then you're going to finish it out like (laughs) years and years later. It wasn't even performed until after his death. 
Some think, which actually makes sense, that it's probably the most reflective of the three. And you would think that, you know, what are you going to do when you're in your 80s or 90s? But I'm not going to speak to that. I think they're all just so very different and what's going on and what they're trying to emphasize. Antigone is clearly the most political play, which is interesting. And Colonus is the most reflective. It's the most personal, spiritual, if you want to think of it like that. And of course, Oedipus uh, Rex or Tyrannus or the king, whatever, is, is kind of in the middle. But anyway, back to our story. In this play, the one, well, let me just say this. And Oedipus at Colonus, the one we're not reading, uh, it kind of tells you what happened in the between years. All these years, and there were many, Oedipus has been just wandering aimlessly around Greece, and then he's going to come to this town called Colonus, which ironically is Sophocles' hometown. And there he's going to meet a king who's going to be kind to him, a king by the name of King Theseus. And this king gives him hospitality. Antigone, when she is old enough to be roaming around on her own, actually leaves Thebes and goes to Colonus so she can take care of her old and aging father. Sweet Antigone. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Meanwhile, as they say, back in the war, there is yet another prophecy. These dang prophecies, (laughs) hmm, they're messing up everything. Apollo reveals that whoever possesses the person of Oedipus is fated to win the war at Thebes. So now the two sons, who really didn't give a rat's rear about their dad, suddenly are in a hunt to kidnap him. Ismene is going to show up in Colonus to tell Antigone and Oedipus what is happening. She also mentions that word is that the city where Oedipus dies is going to have good luck, so they may be coming for him. Creon, who is on Team Ateocles, goes to Colonus to try to kidnap Oedipus. King Theseus, however, is protecting Oedipus and puts an end to that. But Creon, so as not to go away empty-handed, kidnaps Ismene and Antigone. King Theseus goes and he gets the girls. But at this point, Oedipus, angered at his sons for being so self-involved and callous, because if you think about it, look how many people are dying over this. Never mind the personal injury to himself and her sisters. He curses them. Polynices, who had come to Colonus II to get Oedipus' support, sees his plan was probably a fail, understands that this curse he just got from his father might be a big deal, and asks his sisters to be sure to bury him. Thunder and lightning happen. Oedipus has his last moment on earth. The only one with him at his death is Theseus, and that is by design, so that the location of his death will be a total secret. Because remember, there's that promise of luck, and hence the end of Oedipus, but maybe not. It seems the gods find him worthy because of all the suffering he has endured, and they make him a god, which is ultimate irony. And back to the last line and moral lesson of Oedipus, you never know if you had a good life until the very, very end. Wow. You know, the Greeks are into the plot transitions. I mean, you can't get more action-packed than that. Kidnapping and murder oh, and war. Oh, tragedy. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, and then, of course, at the end, the divinity. Poor guy, yet not so poor guy, if he's out there wandering around in his eternity. So, getting back to uh, those earthlings, 
after his passing, Antigone is going to go back to Thebes, presumably, hopefully, to stop the madness between the brothers. But of course, that doesn't work out, and they're going to go warring until they kill each other in battle. And this is where our play, Antigone, begins. Now remember, it's still a Greek play, and it has all the conventions of the Greek plays, just like we discussed before uh, in the intro to Oedipus Rex. Uh, Everyone who's watching the play is still going to be sitting in an amphitheater during a holiday. The actors are still going to be wearing masks and projecting their voices, although the acoustics are better than you would think. They have to kind of yell, so to speak, to be able to be heard throughout the crowd. There will never be more than three people on the stage of the time, and that was quite the modern thing at the time. And, of course, everyone's favorite, the musical interludes or the choruses that will bless us with an interruption to the plot and kind of segment the play into what the Greeks will call episodes. So we're going to start with the prologue. And in this prologue, we will meet the two sisters, Oedipus's daughters. And we're going to see that from the very beginning, they are foils. Now, foils is a literary term, and those are just two characters that have a connection. And these, in this case, they're sisters, but they have a very obvious contrast. And the contrast here is one is very, very strong, and the other one isn't strong at all. Lots of plays. Shakespeare uses this convention a lot in his plays. He always had tons of foils. We saw that uh, in Julius Caesar. But anyway, Antigone is this brave, headstrong, independent thinker. Ismene is more fearful. She's timid. She's a conformist. She understands her role as a woman, which Antigone clearly does not. And this is where the scene will begin. So are we up for reading the prologue? Yes, let's do it. As we get ready to read, I guess let's do some gender stereotyping since they're two women. So you, we can't have one the girl, one the boy, but we'll go the Greek stereotypes. You can be the strong one. You can be Antigone. And I'll be the girl who knows her place is many. And let's see how this goes. Well, normally when you do male voices, they're in a very mocking tone. So should I do a female oh, voice no, in a very mocking tone? Oh, she's a hero, tone? so you have to be respectful. Okay. All right. <laughs> Ismene, dear sister, you would think that we had already suffered enough for the curse on Oedipus. I cannot imagine any grief that you and I have not gone through. And now, have they told you of the new decree of our King Creon? I have heard nothing. I know that two sisters lost two brothers, a double death in a single hour. And I know that the Argive army fled in the night. But beyond this, nothing. I thought so, and that is why I wanted you to come out here with me. There is something we must do. Why do you speak so strangely? Listen, Esmini, Creon buried our brother Eteocles with military honors, gave him a soldier's funeral, and it was right that he should. But Polynices, they fought as bravely and died as miserably. They say that Creon has sworn no one shall bury him. No one mourn for him, but his body must lie in the fields, a sweet treasure for carry-on birds to find as they search for food. That is what they say, and our good Creon is coming here to announce it publicly. And the penalty? Stoning to death in the public square. There it is. And now you can prove what you are, a true sister or a traitor to your family. 
Antigone, are you mad? What could I possibly do? You must decide whether you will help me or not. I do not understand you. Help you in what? Ismini, I'm going to bury him. Will you come? Bury him? You've just said that the new law forbids it. He is my brother, and he is your brother too. But think of the danger. Think what will Creon do. Creon is not enough to stand in my way. Ah, sister, Oedipus died, Everybody, everyone hating him, and for what his own search brought to light, his eyes ripped out by his own hand, and Jocasta died, his mother and wife at once. She twisted the cords that strangled her life, and our two brothers died, each killed by the other's sword, and we are left. But, oh, Antigone, think how much more terrible that these our own death would be if we should go against Creon and do what he has forbidden. We are only women. We cannot fight with men, Antigone. The law is strong, and we must give in to the law. In this thing, and in worse, I beg the dead to forgive me, but I am helpless. I must yield to those in authority, and I think it's dangerous business to, to be always meddling. If that is what you think, I should not want you, even if you ask to come. You have made your choice. You can be what you want to be. But I will bury him, and if I must die, I say that this crime is holy. I shall lie down with him in death, and I shall be as dear to him as he to me. It is the dead, not the living, who make the longest demands. We die forever. You may do as you like, since apparently the laws of the God mean nothing to you. They mean a great deal to me, but I have no strength to break laws that were made for the public good. That must be your excuse, I suppose. But as for me, I will bury the brother I love. And of course, we're going to see now the setup. Uh, You can see that this is primarily a moral and political conflict. And that's the obvious thematic emphasis that we're going to see from the very beginning. Although not the only and most important theme, it is certainly a big idea In this book, this concept of what happens when higher law and human law conflict. Gary, from a political sense, what can you tell us about this? What has man determined over the ages on this issue? (laughs) There is no consensus. Uh, And, of course, it's the basic problem of government that's played government all of time and the conflict that we'll never really solve, I don't think. Uh, the idea of just government and what to do with an unjust government. Um, I mean, if the world is working in a good and peaceful and ideal way, the person in charge is going to make good laws that are fair, preserve a society that treats everyone equally, as we're prone to promote here in the West, where the good people rise to the top and the bad people sink. But a society like this is impossible. It can't be pulled off because of the exact problem Antigone is going to notice The people in charge do not always do the right thing. Is that surprising? No. (laughs) They do not always act fairly, at least in your eyes, and they do not always act in the public good. And this uh, we are going to see illustrated in this verdict of Creon. According to that culture, burying the dead was something that superseded human conflict. You were subjected to the laws of mankind until you were dead. But after you were dead, you were not subjected to the laws of mankind. So in this case, this is what we have. 
Creon picked the side of Eteocles, the younger son, for whatever reason. We really don't know, at least not in this play. Maybe the Greek scholars do. But in this play, we don't know if he was the better brother, if he had a reasonable reason for not giving up the throne for Sophocles. And we can assume for the Greeks that didn't matter. Whatever the reason, there was a war, men died, one side won, and their victory entailed all the spoils of war on earth. But not beyond that. The other side of the grave was the jurisdiction of the gods. You don't get to interfere with what happened on that side of the grave. The Greeks considered the burial of the dead one of the most sacred duties. The psyche, I like that term, or spirit, left the body upon death. And the burial traditions that surrounded the physical body amounted to respecting not just human dignity, but respect for the gods who ruled both the underworld and the upper world. In fact, if you saw a dead body on the side of the road, you were supposed to go over and throw a handful of dust on it. That was enough to pay respects to the spirit whose body could not find rest without that, as well as the gods. In fact, they went so far as if you are at war, and if a general did not give the men, even their enemies, time to bury their dead, this was considered a capital offense. It's also true that women played a tremendously important role in burial. They were um, chiefly responsible for all the aspects of the proper and the very delineated rituals. What well, is a kind of interesting distinction? It's like the gods are not going to get involved in our fights. They're not going to try to make a moral judgment over who was right and who was wrong. As far as they're concerned, whatever. But as soon as death comes, all bets are off. You get a do-over. It's kind of a nice thing, I guess. But it's also, if you think of it that way, uh, understandable why Creon is really overstepping his boundaries. I mean, not even just as a king. He's been a king for one minute because he wasn't. He didn't inherit this throne. He's and, really a regent, not yeah. even a king. And now he's going to take over uh, authority beyond the grave as interpreted by any Greek at any point in any of the Greek state cultures. Is this what the Greeks would refer to as hubris? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty arrogant. Yeah. Cocky. Well, uh, when he said that Polynices' body would not be buried, he was flying in the face of tradition, the face of religion, and even thwarting legal precedent. Uh, this was an obvious case of personal anger and rage interfering with professional duties. He was mad at Polynices. He was not regent, and he was going to use his temporal authority to punish Polynices after death. And this, may I say, is obviously offensive to the gods. There's just no way around it. And obviously offensive to everybody else. Uh, let me point out that uh, Eteocles had been the ruler for a year. This was a deal that Creon had made, but he was only the regent up until the, the point where these boys began to rule. So he was a regent for all these years, was not a king for one year, and most myths will tell you uh, that Polynices already had a son. So Creon was never going to be a long-term king anyway, even if this deal had or hadn't worked out. The two boys can be dead, He could, but he would only still be regent again because Polynices' son would eventually grow up. So here's the conflict. Antigone wants to go over Creon's head, and she's going to appeal to what today we call higher law. She's going to make the moral assessment 
which is interesting for a woman, and I think specifically for a Greek woman in the ancient world, and you see the difference between her attitude and his many in this first conversation, she's making the assessment that man's law is not the final moral authority over anyone, especially not her. God's law is the higher moral authority, and in those moments when God's law and man's law can fit, conflict, she didn't only have the right, but she claims to have a moral obligation not to ignore God's laws, but to indeed ignore man's laws. Oh, this exact scenario has been played out uncountable times in world history across all governments. And uh, it's a conversation we've even had in our own modern political context. We've got Dr. Martin Luther King, who made the case very eloquently um, that in his letter he famously wrote from the Birmingham jail. He says, there are two types of laws, the just and the unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Here we see the whole Antigone ceremony or situation being played out. He quotes St. Augustine and says so far that an unjust law is no law at all. And of course, then he goes on to eloquently give various examples from all times in history reminding his readers that uh, everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did was illegal. Uh, It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. And then he says, even so, I'm sure that had I lived in Germany at that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. Funny you should bring up Hitler. There's this guy named Jean Anouy, and I know my French is probably not (laughs) awesome. But anyway, he lived in France during uh, the Nazi occupation uh, of France during this time period. And you're right, everyone, you know, with the eyes of of history goes back and say, oh, I would never have done those things. I would have stood up to those Nazis. And, of course, lots of us would have been as many cowering under fear of the consequences but Anui, Jean Anui was reminded of this story, Antigone, and he performed, he wrote and performed his own version of this play at this time of great censorship in France. It's actually a very cool movie. You can see it on YouTube. I'm sure you can see it other places. Uh, all the characters were modernized in the sense that they were wearing these modern military uniforms, and it was set during this Nazi occupation era. They were all, you know, it's kind of funny. They're all smoking cigarettes and, you know, drinking these cool 1940 beverages and uh, carrying guns. Uh, however, um, he was writing the play and performing it kind of to send this actual very message. He wanted to call out people in France for collaborating with the Nazis on the grounds that they should be following a higher law and not just saying, well, it's the legal thing to do, so I need to submit to these Nazi governments. After the war, by the way, in 1949, it premiered in London, and Laurence Olivier played the chorus in um, Anouilly's version. Anouilly isn't 
like a group of people that march around. It's like a narrator. He just talks and he calls himself, my name's Chorus. Uh, but Vivian Lee from Gone with the Wind, she played Antigone. So it's actually pretty cool. There's been several versions of it. Uh, I like watching it in some ways, in a lot of ways, better than the Greek version. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, uh, there is the age-old conflict, what do I do? I mean, it, it's awful to be in a position of the Hungarian freedom fighter or the French citizen and not to control Germany, or in this case, the sister of the man the ruler told you not to bury on pains of death. So what do you do, especially if you promised your brother you'd bury him? And there's clearly two opinions. For as many, this, there wasn't a question. I mean, she says what it, she doesn't even understand the question. She doesn't even think about it. She clearly says this. We're only women. She's meaning we're property. We don't get to make the decisions. Like, what's the chair going to do about it? We don't have any agency. We have no responsibility. We don't have any rights, so therefore we don't have any responsibility. We're off the hook by virtue of our sex and our place in society. And there's no way to reason that that's not a reasonable position. If I don't get to decide, why should it be my fault if things go poorly? But then we see another side of this. And we saw this in Oedipus. And we see it here in, Antico- in, in Antigone. Uh, and Sophocles is saying, because I really think the Greeks do truly admire this idea that there is something special about people who can take on responsibilities, even if there was a valid argument for them to shirk it, even if it wasn't really something that they should have or could have known or done something about. So she takes on a burden. She takes on a responsibility. And she's going to respond and say, well, you know what? You do what you have to do. I'm going to do what I have to do. Uh, True, but uh, I must say there's a little bit here that seems not as altruistic as it might at first pass. Don't take her altruism. (laughs) (laughs) She's looking beyond death to the underworld and basically appears to be thinking we're going to die eventually. And when we get down there, I may have to answer for some of this crap. Uh, She even concludes by telling Ismene that the dead will be hating her. And she ends by saying This, I am more afraid of death without honor than death at all, which is interesting and very Greek. We don't think like that anymore, but it's a real thing. I don't want my memory to be dishonorable. I don't want my life after death to be dishonorable. Well, it would be a thing if you know you're going to have to run into Polynices and goes, oh, yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward conversations. Well, it's a very emotional and heated exchange, uh, for sure. And then after that, we're going to get to the first, of course, choral ode, or parados, if you're interested in the Greek word. Uh, But in this case, the chorus is going to be chanting certain lines as they enter the stage. And they're going to be talking about the war between the brothers. Really, it's setting up the drama and the stage of what's going on. But the ode is optimistic, Everyone's happy. The people, the community, the war is over. Let's let it go. Let's have peace. Too bad they died, but, you know, let's move on. But remember, the audience knows better. There's irony involved. It is indeed a Greek play. Creon is going to come in with his decree, and even though everyone thinks it's going to be peaceful and happy, we know it's not. He's a new king, sure. The battle is over, sure. This is his first decree, 
And he's starting off great because he's comparing Thebes to a ship. You recognize that that was the very same metaphor we saw in uh, Oedipus Rex. He's saying that the ship has come to harbor. It's ready for safety. That's what everybody wants to hear. Then he's going to talk about the need to have friendship, loyalty. And then the mouth gets open. His foot goes in. (laughs) Bump. That's an American expression. It means it goes bad. He's going to let his hubris, there's that word again, his Greek inflated ego, to use the way they think of it, um, get the best of him. At any rate, and that is why I have made the following decision concerning the sons of Oedipus. Ateocles, who died as a man should die, fighting for his country, is to be buried with full military honors, with all the ceremony that is usual when the greatest heroes die. But his brother Polynices, who broke his exile to come back with fire and sword against his native city and the shrines of his father's gods, whose one idea was to spill the blood of his blood and sell his own people into slavery. Polynices, I say, is to have no burial. No man is to touch him or say the least prayer for him. He shall lie on the plain, unburied, and the birds and the scavenging dogs can do with him whatever they like. This is my command, and you can see the wisdom behind it. So, I am wise, as I'm saying. This is my command. He goes on to say, as long as I am king, no traitor is going to be honored with the loyal man. But whoever shows by word and deed that he is on the side of the state, he shall have my respect while he is living and my reverence when he is dead. So any any example of hubris right there and all that? Well, he's being strong, but you know, I guess in a sense, you know, day one of kingdom, they say, you know, there's that old cliche that teachers have to be mean on the first day so everyone will respect him. Maybe that's his thinking here. Well, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, But uh, one question that I think reasonable people are going to have if they read this play and know anything about Greek theater is that it has to have a tragic hero. So who is the tragic hero in this play, and what's their tragic flaw? That's really a good question. And, you know, scholars, to be honest with you, don't always agree on the answer. So I'm just going to tell you my opinion and pretend that it's authoritative truth, Creon style. (laughs) I'm very used to that. Hey, hey. Well, anyway, answer, short answer. Antigone is the tragic hero, not Creon. And I think I'm, I'll defend my thinking next week when we kind of see the demise and, and what happens to her. But just for starters, the title of the play is named after her. This is not called Creon. That's a giveaway. Yeah, it's called Antigone. But even more importantly than that, remember, tragedies have everything to do with the pathos. We learned that from Aristotle. That's what he said. In a good tragedy, you're going to experience two emotions. You're going to experience fear and you're going to experience pity. You're going to experience fear because you're going to be afraid. Oh, I'm a good person and this could happen to me. In other words, you're going to identify right off the bat with her predicament. What if you were in this situation? But you're also going to feel for her. You're going to feel sad for her and feel like she doesn't really get what she deserves. And this, to me, is very different than what we're going to see happen to Creon. And, you know, it's a Greek place. We don't mind spoilers. Creon's going to have some tragedy, too, but you don't really feel sad for him. 
you don't think he's a hero. You think, well, you were poorly, you acted poorly, you dumb, greedy, arrogant son of a gun. What did you think was going to happen? And being dumb actually is kind of one of his big problems. But I would also argue that the big ego is the larger and the more lethal problem. Why did he have to take it? Just just for starters, why did he have to take it so personally that Polynices attacked the city? I know people died and I know there is something there, but it wasn't really his kingdom. He'd raised the boys, he'd brokered the deal, but in some sense, this wasn't really his fight. Uh, what It was just as much Ateocles' responsibility in some sense than it was Polynices, but... Uh, he was really seemed to be mad that Polynices didn't fall in line like he wanted him to. I really don't know, but at the end of the day, this language is highly arrogant, and it is his arrogance that we're going to see come up over and over again pretty much every time he opens his mouth. Well, and part of what makes this play so insightful is that uh, Creon is a bold statement on the nature of power and what people do once they have it. And how they don't like to give it up and how they will compete with others to, to keep it. And I want to have that problem one day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will be humble. Well, the humble tyrant. <laughs> They've never made that play. Yeah. Uh, I think you may be prone to some hubris there. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I mean, I know that we can't judge ancient dialogue by modern standards. And they were wearing masks and speaking loudly and concisely before large crowds so there's that dynamic but his lines are aggressive nonetheless well they are aggressive even from the beginning this is my command and it's going to become more and more aggressive we're going to have this century to come in and the poor guy i think he's kind of funny he's scared out of his mind and he's got to tell creon something that creon doesn't want to hear and that is oh no somebody has gone and buried Polynices. Well, he makes sure Creon knows that it wasn't him, and that is a little funny. They, he's pretty hesitant to come out with the truth. Yeah, he's going to say, I wonder, uh, well, he's going to say, the dead man, Polynices, out there, someone, new dust on the slimy flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, what a line. Someone has given it a burial that way. And gone, like these, you know, stuttering phrases, not full sentences. And we learned that Antigone didn't even, it's not like she dug a six foot hole and obnoxiously threw the body in. She just performed the ritual. The century actually describes it as a ghost piece. In other words, just enough to keep, you know, the spirits at bay. This whole time, though, and he get, he does get a little bit more eloquent making full-on sentences as the story progresses, so much so that he doesn't notice Creon's going to get angrier and angrier and angrier until he explodes. Stop! He calls him a doddering wreck. He calls him crazy. He says, Is it your senile opinion that the gods love to honor bad men? That's not a leading question or anything. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to say? Yes. (laughs) Of course, I think uh, there's all kinds of irony going here because... The audience is going to say, hmm, Creon, who's the bad man? And then I, what I find strange, but maybe not strange, if you think of Creon as kind of an arrogant guy or a paranoid guy, Creon goes on to hijack the whole Polynesia's burial problem. 
He brings up money and anarchy, which I didn't understand at first. He's going to make the case that somebody is bribing a guard to bury Polynices. What does that even mean? Why would anyone bribe a guard to bury Polynices? He's dead. Who would do that? The only person that would benefit from his burial is him. And how is he going to bribe anyone? He's dead. But then it occurred to me, Creon is paranoid. He's thinking that whoever buried the dead did it to get it him. That it wasn't about Polynices having rest in the underworld at all. It was about him. He said you can't. And so somebody said did it because they were after him. It's personal. He's been king for a day, and he's worried that somebody's coming in to take it from him. Wow. I mean, it, it seems that even the dumb sentry is confused by that conclusion. Um, he even tries to make a comment to the king to the gist of, um, I don't understand how this hurts you. <laughs> and then, of course, Creon just totally loses his mind, runs him off. The sentry runs out of the room. And the last thing he says is, I am safe. And you can, I can see somebody being really funny about this if they were going to perform this modern, modern in a modern way, saying, hallelujah, I'm glad. I don't know how they killed people in the ancient world, but I'm glad my head is on my body or I didn't get shot or any of the whatever metaphor you want to use <laughs> to say, I made it. And, of course, that's going to take us, uh, that conversation is going to take us to the second choral ode, which I guess is a nice place for us to end uh for now. In general, the choral odes are, of course, the chorus's response to what has just happened. And in this case, it's a bit enigmatic. Um, the chorus is going to talk about how amazing man is compared to other animals, but they're going to end with the observation that even for man, even especially for man, there are forces that are really unexplainable. They're going to call it fate. It works towards good or evil. When the laws of the universe are kept, things go well. When they're not kept, things go awry. Which leaves us to the question, who are they talking about? Creon? Antigone? Who's breaking laws? Only the audience is left to sort this out. And ironically, we know who's doing what. <laughs> That's right. That's the benefit of being the audience member. At a safe distance. Yes, very safe distance. All right. Well, that will wrap it up for uh, this podcast time period regarding Antigone. Thanks for being with us today. Tell your friends about us. Uh, come and listen to all the other podcasts we've got. We've got how many books now do we have up on the podcast side? Uh, more than one. Yeah, there's a few. <laughs> anyway, invite your friends uh, to come along and enjoy those. Follow us on our Instagram page. Catch up with us on our Facebook page. Uh, but most importantly, go to our How to Love Lit Podcast.com page. All kinds of information there that are very useful regarding the podcast. So, again, next week we'll pick up with Antigone. Leave us a message and peace out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.